0: Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics and Dean of the Faculty at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University.
1: And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Biola University, specifically Talbot School of Theology.
0: Hey, have you ever wondered about evolution, creation, theistic evolution intelligent design different views of the origin of life and the origin of the universe with well, that if you've had questions about that we have a world renowned expert on the on a view known as intelligent design uh, who's with us today Dr. Steve Meyer who's a, a, both a geophysicist and a philosopher of science. He's a PhD from Cambridge University and currently with a group called the Discovery Institute and one of the leading proponents in the world today of the view called intelligent design. So, Steve, thanks for being with us. We look forward to our time together. Let me, let me start with this. Um, what of the, of the various options that are out there in terms of origins Why don't you help our listeners understand sort of the the landscape? If you could just briefly identify what the main options are for understanding origins.
2: Well, I think there's even prior to that, there's a main issue, and that is, um, did life originate as the result of the activity of a designing mind, of a conscious agent, or is it the product of purely undirected material processes that, uh, as one neo-Darwinist put it, did not have us in mind, um, mind or no mind, and the debate about intelligent design and Darwinian evolution and some of the more current versions of evolutionary theory is most importantly a debate about whether or not mind played a role at all, rather than how long ago it took uh, the how long ago uh, life originated or um, whether the pattern in the fossil record is continuous or discontinuous. Those are uh, secondary issues.
1: Recently, you co-edited a massive book about 900 pages in length called Theistic Evolution with J.P. Moreland, Wayne Grudem, and a few others. Let me play the skeptic a little bit and say, what's the big deal about evolution? Why commit so much time, theistic evolution, to critique in a view held by some other believers?
2: Uh, well, I think, first of all, the, the view is um, b- because the theistic evolutionists have adopted essentially a moribund view of uh, the science, they're embracing uh, the mutation selection mechanism and other similar evolutionary mechanisms as the means by which God created, at the, very, at the very same time as many leading evolutionary biologists themselves are saying that these mechanisms are inadequate. They lack creative power. They explain, common aphorism, the survival, but not the arrival of the fittest. Small-scale variation, like finch beaks getting bigger and smaller, but not where birds come from in the first place. So it's kind of an odd thing for so many uh, in the Christian college world and in the theistic evolutionary community at large to embrace those very same mechanisms as the means by which God created, as, for example, the president of uh, BioLogos, Deborah Harzman, did in a recent uh, f- book on four views of of um, uh, creation, evolution, and intelligent design. She equated God's creativity with the, the action of the mutation natural selection mechanism. Uh, we think scientifically that that is uh, uh, unwarranted, that the evidence for the creative power of that very same mechanism is uh, is non-existent or extremely limited, and there are good reasons to doubt the creative power of the mutation selection mechanism. So why say that's the means by which God created? Um, So much of the book concerns scientific problems with theistic evolution. It's kind of an irony right now because, because the mainstream evolutionary biologists themselves are in something of a disarray. There's many different new proposals being made. There isn't a single consensus view about the mechanism that would drive the evolutionary process. That increasingly, we found that the only people that really contest our view of intelligent design and who defend mainstream neo-Darwinism are the theistic evolutionists. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe that's another reason to engage them. But I, th- I think many of the authors in the the big new book are also um, theologians and philosophers who are concerned about the way in which this evolutionary framework is being used as a hermeneutical framework for. Understanding Scripture, and as a consequence, leading to reformulation of fundamental Christian doctrines in light of the alleged certainty we have about evolutionary theory, at a very time when, we, of course, we don't have that certainty. Mm-hmm. So I think there is, uh, especially in the last third of the book, where the, the theologians were, are are um, chiming in. They're 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 arguing that listen, um, fellow biblical scholars, fellow theologians, you don't need to adopt uncritically or on the authority of some, the evolutionary framework as a way of reading scripture or as a way of understanding basic Christian doctrines. It's going to lead you uh,
1: astray. I had the chance to interview JP on my blog on that book, and it went nuts, like hundreds of people reposting it. This book's in its third printing, even though it's an academic 900-page book. Do you think it's hit a nerve? If so, what is that? I absolutely
2: do, and it shocked us, actually, to tell you the truth. We... we, um, produced the book, developed the book, thinking it would be a reference work for theologians, seminary professors, biblical scholars, some church leaders. But when we presented the, we had a panel at the Evangelical Theological Society and the Evangelical Philosophical Society in Rhode Island in November. And there was six or 700 people in the room, it was packed. The BioLogos people were there making some spirited challenges from the floor afterwards. It was an electric atmosphere, and a lot of theologians and biblical scholars coming up afterwards saying this was long overdue, that the, the, the Templeton-funded um, theistic evolutionists or evolutionary creationist groups, the Faraday Institute in the United Kingdom, BioLogos, Center for Theology and Natural Sciences, there's a number of these groups, that they've been having their way in this discussion without any opposition, and that many theologians have felt bullied, uh, intellectually bullied, not physically bullied, but by only being exposed to one side of the, of the discussion mm. and, and being told that science says uh, definitively and without any room for questioning that uh, some form of Darwinian evolution is the explanation for the origin of all new forms of life. And therefore, they must, they are under an intellectual obligation mm. to read scripture through a Darwinian or an evolutionary lens. And the main... Um, focus of my talk was to show scientifically that that's not true, that there are very good reasons for doubting the core claims of both contemporary neo-Darwinism and the more recently formulated versions of evolutionary theory, and that therefore theologians should not feel that they must reinterpret the whole of the Bible, Genesis, basic doctrines about the atonement or the fall in light of the alleged certitude that we have around evolutionary theory. We don't have such certitude. There are good reasons to doubt it, scientific reasons, and therefore there isn't the intellectual obligation that people have been told that they have to interpret Scripture within that framework.
0: Let me go back to what you said just a minute yeah. ago
2: about how— how. Embr- I, I dodged your other question about all the other different views, and if you okay, want to come back we'll, to that, we'll, I can— We'll get to that. Give you a taxonomy.
0: Um, um, yeah. But for, for the person who embraces theistic evolution, maybe, maybe our listeners may not be aware— um, can you be a little more specific about what biblical doctrines you think are actually at stake?
2: Well, I think it might be uh, helpful first to be a little more specific about the different possible meanings of the term theistic evolution, because a number of them are quite innocuous. Uh, the And we started the book, um, I wrote the opening introductory essay, uh, scientific and philosophical introduction. The theologian uh, Gwen Grudem wrote the, uh, the theological introduction. But... Uh, I started by just dis- d- defining the different meanings of the term evolution, because when you can join the term evolution with uh, the- theistic or theism, you could mean a lot of different things. Evolution can mean just change over time. If you think that God caused change over time, that's a meaning of theistic evolution, which is entirely innocuous. Mm-hmm. It has no, um, I think, significant uh, poses no significant challenges to theological orthodoxy and doesn't really challenge any sci- well-held, uh, well-justified scientific propositions either. Second meaning of evolution is the idea of universal common descent, that all organisms are related by common ancestry. I happen to be skeptical about that. Some proponents of intelligent design aren't. But um, it is at least logically possible to believe that God caused the kind of continuous change that is depicted in the Darwinian tree of life and therefore, you could have a meaningful form of theistic evolution that affirmed common descent, though I think there are some very good reasons scientifically to doubt it. There's discontinu- huge discontinuity in the fossil record, and, and increasingly we're realizing in, the, in uh, the genomic patterns that we see. Um, but the, the third meaning of evolution is the, uh, the affirmation of the creative power of the mutation selection mechanism and other similarly undirected materialistic evolutionary processes Um, There are new evolutionary mechanisms being proposed, for example, uh, self-organizational ideas or uh, epigenetic inheritance and things like that. And so that's where I think things get really problematic and where we have challenged our friends in the theistic evolution world to clarify what they mean by evolution. Do you mean an embrace of the mutation selection mechanism? Do you mean a directed or an undirected process? Many people don't realize that the mutation selection mechanism is by um, definition an inherently unguided, undirected uh, process within a Darwinian framework. Because all good Darwinians, from Charles Darwin to Dawkins to the you know to other evolutionary biologists of the present, will deny that the appearance of design in living systems that all biologists recognize is actual or real. They want to see that appearance is an illusion, and it's illusion produced by an unguided, undirected process. If it were real design then whatever process produced it must be guided or directed. But as soon as you say that the, you can't detect design, that the appearance of design in living organisms is, um, is is illusory, then you're you're committing yourself to the idea that the mechanism that produced it is unguided. And so we wanted to know from our theistic evolutionist friends, do you think when you say you're a theistic evolutionist or, or an evolutionary creationist, do you mean by that the evolutionary process is guided or unguided? And they have been famously ambiguous on this topic in response. Um, I, I think that's an important thing for them to clarify, but it's certainly where the, the, the difficulties most arise, and I can talk about that a little yeah. more. Well, I guess,
0: to, uh, to play the devil's advocate a bit, why, why couldn't the theistic evolutionists just say, hey, you know, we're, we're agnostic about the specific mechanism mm. that's used, but we know God somehow directed the process?
2: Well, that would be a form of intelligent design. Okay, Because if God directed it, God is doing something. The problem with the position of theistic evolution, is, it's most commonly promulgated, is that it's the form of evolution that is somehow attributing it all to God, but yet unwilling to specify what, if anything, God did. And uh, that is partly a consequence of their denial that God's action is detectable, but also that God played any causal role in the directing the process towards any particular propitious endpoint, so you will have the affirmation that God upheld the laws of nature. And Deb Harsman, when I challenged her in the Four Views book, um, it is evolution. The evolution process, directed or undirected, came back and said, "Well, my view is that God is upholding the laws of nature, and that's an active role." Well, that's true, but the the, the laws of nature don't generate new information. The laws of nature describe patterns of order that recur over and over again. It, they do not describe novelty arising. Uh, sun up, sun down. All unsupported bodies fall. The same thing happens over and over again. If it does, then we describe it with a law of nature. So to explain novelty, you need something more than the laws of nature, and that that something is either directed or undirected. Is it mutation or is it design? And on that. Uh, in her actually, in her reply, it was clear that that she did not believe okay. the evolutionary process was directed. Only that the laws of nature were being sustained. We agree that the laws of nature are being sustained by God, as, theist, as theists, as theist. But we also think that God played an active role in generating novelty.
0: Okay, so so give our listeners a a one sentence definition of your view of intelligent design.
2: Intelligent design is the idea that there are certain features of the universe and of living systems that are best explained by the action of a designing intelligence. Scientifically, particularly
0: maybe in the last 50 years or so, what are some of the most powerful evidences that you've uncovered that lend credence to intelligent design?
2: Well, in physics, uh, the interest in design started with the discovery of the many separate, now maybe three or four dozen separate, Fine-tuning parameters, features of the physical world, the—for example, the the strength of the different fundamental forces, the ratio of those different strengths one to another, the speed of light, the expansion rate of the universe, the, the rate at which new space is created from the, in the expansion of the universe, the um, uh, and many many other uh, such parameters. Uh, the discovery that these were exquisitely finely tuned within very narrow tolerances in, to make life possible. We live in, it has been discovered in a kind of Goldilocks universe where the fundamental forces are not too strong, not too weak. The speed of light is not too fast, not too slow. The Expansion rate of the universe, the same, not too fast, not too slow. And on and on through, through dozens mm-hmm. of such parameters. Some of them are calibrated quantitatively, to hyper-exponentially. Uh, the so-called cosmological constant is finely tuned to one part and 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power. It's a hyper-exponential number. That means a little tiny smidgen on e- going either direction, life is no longer possible. And the, many leading physicists saw from the outset of these discoveries that fine-tuning seemed to imply, most logically or naturally, a fine-tuner, an intelligent agent. Now there's a multiverse hypothesis and we could get into that, but it's I think it's implausible for a number of reasons, not least of which is that all the mechanisms that have been proposed to explain where you'd get these other universes to make render our universe more probable themselves require fine-tuning. Then in so but then there are other evidences of okay, so biology. So
0: there's a fine-tuning argument. There's a fine-tuning argument in okay, physics, yeah. Yeah. What else?
2: Well, in biology, I think there's another kind of fine-tuning, and that in, in a sense, information, the presence of information in living cells is a kind of fine-tuning. But um, the, bi- the big discovery, is, I, I was in a number of things in biology, but we've first there's been the discovery that at the foundation of life, in DNA and proteins, you have precisely sequenced subunits that are conveying and storing information. And that information we know in our experience is a product of mind or intelligence. Our um, local hero in... Redmond, Washington, where I have my office, Bill Gates says that uh, DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than any we've ever created. We know from experience that software always comes from a programmer. It takes a programmer to make a program. We know more generally that whenever we see information arising, whether it's in a written text or a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or even the information that's used In computer simulations of the evolutionary process, the information has always come from an intelligent agent. In the case of these evolutionary algorithms, it came from the programmer who wanted to simulate the evolutionary process. And the the program only works if there's an input of information from the programmer. So information is a mind product. That we have discovered at the foundation of life suggests that the origin and development of life was, was produced in some measure
1: by the activity of a designing intelligence. So you've been involved in the origins debate and discussion for some time. In 2004, when Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Creator, came out, hosted a conference, and he interviewed you and some other people. We had some leading intelligent design proponents down. I asked him, I said, what's your predictions for this? And he said, I think in two decades, the Darwinist material edifice is going to fall. I talked to him later. He said, yeah, we were probably a little bit too optimistic on that one. Now that you're a couple decades in, Where do you predict and see this debate and conversation going? And second, what are you excited about in terms of what you see in the world coming up of intelligent design? Terrific
2: questions, both. Um, Actually, i would be a little provocative here, but I think the Darwinist edifice has already crumbled. Um, I don't think evolutionary naturalism has crumbled Mm. because there's a worldview commitment to that way of interpreting data. Uh, methodological naturalism—the idea that you must explain all things by reference to purely undirected materialistic processes—but the main current, the the, the 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 modern version of Darwinian theory, called neo-Darwinism or the neo-Darwinian synthesis, I think is effectively dead. Stephen Jay Gould mm-hmm. said this back in 1980, 1977, something like that. But I attended the Royal Society conference in London in 2016, and it was called by leading evolutionary biologists who are now um, openly, not only acknowledging but calling for uh, acknowledging that neo-Darwinism is dead, and and calling for a new theory of evolution, because they realize that the mutation natural selection has very limited creative powers. We were saying earlier, and um, and it makes sense if you think, for example, of the, the the importance of information to living systems. We know from experience that if you start to randomly change say, the zeros and ones in a section of digital software code, you're going to degrade that information long before you ever come to a new functional program, algorithm, or operating system. And I've shown in both my books, uh, particularly in Darwin's Doubt, that the same thing turns out to be true mathematically of the attempt to generate new genes from pre-existing genes, new sections of functional DNA from pre-existing sections of DNA by the mutation selection mechanism. That's just one of a host of problems uh, confronting the claim that the mutation selection mechanism has creative power. And the the leading evolutionary biologists are smart enough to know about these problems, and many of them have, have written about them themselves. So they're looking for a new theory. So I think neo-Darwinism is dead. Whoever predicted wow. that in 2004 was correct. Mm. In fact, Jim Shapiro, who was at the Royal Society Conference, has been... I'm getting this secondhand, but rumored to have said that criticism of neo-Darwinism is so early 90s. Uh. Okay. It's passe. Well, and, he, and Shapiro is a very credible you know, uh, attribution. I didn't hear him say it myself, but it's credible because he's involved in in trying to formulate a third way, not intelligent design, mm-hmm. but not neo-Darwinism either, with a, with a new theory of evolution. The, the problem with the new theories of evolution is that they've been subject to the same fundamental problems is neo-Darwinism. Neo-Darwinism, they they have offered some new insights that have been really valuable. Shapiro's got this great work on what he calls natural genetic engineering and how organisms have a pre-programmed adaptive capacity to certain environmental stressors so that allows them to adapt, when we would say within limits, but they do adapt, they do. The question that Shapiro never addresses, however, is the one that we're most interested in, where'd the pre-programming come from? He says it's under algorithmic control, where the algorithm come from. Um, so e- even his model, which has got a lot to a lot going for it, doesn't answer the fundamental question that we think is the driver of, of, of the inference to intelligent design, because we know that programming comes from
1: programmers. So it's really a worldview issue There's at its heart. There's still a
2: commitment on the part of the evolutionary biologists who have abandoned neo-Darwinism to a strictly materialistic theory of some kind to explain the origin and development in life. They're not gonna go for ID, but that's a philosophical commitment. It is not an expression of the strength of their
1: scientific theorizing. So what are you excited about coming up intelligent design then? I'm excited
2: because we're, we're kind of past, what's Definitely. passe for us is uh, continuing to, to make the argument for intelligent design. We think we've won the argument hmm. on, any, by any reasonable, uh, mer- uh, on any reasonable way of judging. Let me give you an example. My my book uh, uh, Darwin Darwin's Doubt came out in 2013. It got a few sort of um, specious, uh, frivolous reviews. People not critiquing the main argument of the book. Um, One review that came out on Amazon nine thousand words by an otherwise serious person, but it was published the first night it was possible to buy the book. So probably didn't. Oh my goodness! Anyway, I finally did get a serious review in science from Charles Marshall, a leading evolutionary biologist and paleontologist of the Cambrian explosion, as it happens, at uh, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, I was thrilled at the review. It was negative, but I was thrilled. It was respectful. Hmm. had some nice things to say about how well-written the book was and so forth. But the main thing was his criticism. He says, Meyer claims, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but you can find it. I've I've got it online. Uh, He says, uh, Meyer claims that Uh, you you need new information to generate these new Cambrian animal forms. He says that's not our current understanding. All you would need would would be for the evolutionary process to to rewire the gene regulatory networks that control Mm -hmm. animal development and the expression of other pre-existing genes. And the words pre-existing genes ought to be a (laughs) tip-off because I'm challenging them to explain the origin of information and he posits a process that actually invokes three significant sources of pre existing information. First, the gene regulatory networks, which are networks of, of interacting genes, functionally integrated gene uh, networks uh, that, that do control the timing and expression of other genes. The, so, the g- gene regulatory networks are chock full of genetic information, they act on other genes for building the protein parts of various uh, systems in animals. And then to rewire one of those systems, you would have to have multiple changes, coordinated changes in code, which would be another source of information. So to answer the challenge that, hey, you guys in the evolutionary world aren't explaining the origin of the information, he responds, he posits effectively, he presupposes three significant but unexplained sources of information. If that's the best that the best can do, and I would assert that Marshall is one of the best, he's terrific, then I think that the whole evolutionary paradigm, from uh, the whole naturalistic evolutionary paradigm, is in serious trouble. And so for me, what for, for us, we can keep flogging that argument. We're happy to do it. But more exciting is to start to take these concepts and use them heuristically to guide new research. And that's what we're doing. We've got a, a, a number of new research projects that are based on our our core ID, our core ID concepts, you know, some, there are some people for whom n- uh, there is not enough. There will never be enough evidence to 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 change to, to change one's mind. We're not going to wait around for uh, what, what was the the, the the bitter enders. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're going to move on with our own scientific research program. And that's where I think it gets really exciting,
1: Dr. Stephen Myers. I have so many more questions for you, but that's why I'm going to encourage our listeners to get both your books. They're scholarly, first class, but they're eminently readable even to non-specialists. Darwin's Doubt and Signature in the Cell are just outstanding works. And I, before we close, I want to personally thank you for, number one, just doing great scientific work. But also the way I've seen you interact on a number of occasions with skeptics, with people that push back hard. You have a generousness about you and a graciousness about you that I think is a model, certainly, of what we want to do at Biola and we want to see in the next generation. So thanks for having that spirit and hard work and probably taking some shots from people in the church and outside, but just standing firm with graciousness. We really appreciate the work yeah, that's that you very do. kind
2: of you to say. Thank you.
1: This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically conversations on faith and culture to learn more about us and today's guest dr stephen meyer and to find more episodes go to biola.edu forward slash think that's biola.edu forward slash think if you enjoyed today's conversation give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend thanks for listening and remember think biblically about everything